All right, so we are on part two of this material. And um, if you will recall, we're trying to analyze and, and understand this question through the grid of four questions. Do I believe the gospel? Is this thing that we're talking about, in our case here, homosexual, uh, LGBT uh, behaviors and desires, is this an evil desire? And then the third question is, is this a sinful action? And then the fourth question is, is this an unwise path? And so depending on how a person answers these questions will put you on a road and lead you to a destination. And so our goal is to try to understand what we um, might mean. Uh, last week we spent the entire time trying to understand what I mean by believe the gospel. And that's not that am I religious or did I ever go down the aisle once? It's the full doctrine of the gospel that we're all sinners and stuff like that. So, uh, and if you recall, if a person said no to all four questions, then I would guess that that person would be someone who has, um, God has no, or no one has any authority over my sexual life. And love is love, so it doesn't matter who I love, love is love. And if you are not tolerant of me, so intolerance is evil, and even the lack of affirmation is evil. So that's what we see from the group of people in our world today. Those are my observations, that a person who thinks that um, homosexual relationships are totally fine and without any restraint, they have this perspective of the rest of us. Okay, if you said that you do not believe the gospel, but you still think that homosexual uh, attraction is an evil desire, then that puts you in the camp of legalistic people like Pharisees and religious organizations or movements, moralism like Islam or Judaism or other religions that do not claim Jesus but still claim a strong line against um, homosexual sin and then or and or uh, totalitarianism right Russia and China and other places are very unfriendly to the LGBT movement and it's not because uh, they believe the gospel it's actually kind of sadly in the other direction so so the point is is that um, the gospel really this should not be the description of us is what I'm trying to say, right? We believe the gospel and we ought to be distinctive from these other um, perspectives. Okay, so if you believe that the gospel is true and you trust the gospel, then um, what we said last time is that the gospel teaches me that I am more sinful than I can possibly imagine and that I have been saved by grace alone. It's not any merit on my part. It wasn't because I was a good boy or something like that. I was saved by Jesus' love alone, by grace. And I received it as a gift, a pure gift. And then because of that, I am aware then that I am not any better than anyone else. And so I have no moral standing that makes me better than my neighbor or my you know, co-worker or anything. And so I'm not a more moral person. I, I was, I'm just a sinner who's been saved, not any less a sinner. And then I would also say that because I believe in the gospel, God is working 
in my life to conform me to the image of Jesus. I don't have um, the options to be my own king anymore. Jesus is my king, and I have to submit to his standards. And by definition, <clears throat> that's going to produce conflict because I am a sinner, and there are things that I like that Jesus doesn't. And there are things that I don't like that Jesus does. And so he gets to win. And so that's what I'm saying is when I believe the gospel is he gets to win and he's changing me. And God is conforming me through his spirit to the person of Jesus. So those are the only um, groups that we've kind of answered so far. And so tonight, the question that comes before us is, well, if I do believe the gospel, let's assume that for, for now, the next question is, is this an evil desire? Is homosexual uh, attraction or homosexuality, the LGBT, is that an evil desire? And of course, the first question you should ask in your mind is, what do you mean by evil desire? And I would say, thank you for asking. That's what we're going to spend the next 30 minutes talking about. I want to define it as biblically as I can. And so... Um, First of all, in order to do that, I'm going to try to work through these three questions. Is I want to, or these three points. This is, my, this is my plan of attack. I want to define, I want to go over the biblical definition of evil desire. I want to see what the Bible tells us about how to respond to our evil desires. And then I want to point out the resources found in the gospel for dealing with evil desires. So what does it mean? How do we respond to it, and what resources do we have to help us in that response? And so as we start the first one then, the definition of an evil desire, let me start with um, this statement, that ideas and or temptations themselves are not sinful. And so I would get that from a couple places in the Bible. First of all, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so what I'm trying to point out by this particular passage is simply that Jesus knew the definition of adultery. And Jesus knew what it means to look at a woman lustfully. He knows what that means. He knows the definition, right? He understands the idea, and yet Jesus never sinned. So it must be possible to know the idea without sinning. Okay, is this sort of straightforward? And then the other thing the Bible tells us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. And so the Lord Jesus, this is talking about him, has experienced temptation and yet he did not sin. It's very explicitly stated in the scripture. So you can be tempted to do something and not sin. It's your response to the temptation that leads to sin. Okay, so, so just starting out simply, ideas or definitions and temptations are not simple. So the fact that I know what the term homosexual means does not mean that I have done anything sinful, right? Or even if I were tempted to be homosexual, that does not mean, it could not mean that I have done anything sinful. Something else has to happen. All right, so let's talk about that. So desires themselves can be sinful, and some of them always are. 
Okay, so just stay with me and think that through. Desires can be sinful, and some desires always are. So again, let me just kind of back up. Some desires are never evil, like the desire to please God. Right? That would never be an evil desire. Now, it's true that I could maybe fail at doing it well. I could have false motives trying to please God, all those things. But my desire to love Jesus is not an evil desire. Granted? Okay. So that's, I think we can understand that. Some desires are sometimes evil. So I can have the desire for chocolate cake. And sometimes it's evil and sometimes maybe not. Or I could have the desire to um, have sexual fulfillment. Some, there's, there's at least one situation where that's not a problem, right? That's between a husband and wife in marriage. And so some desires are sometimes evil, sometimes not. But there are some desires, and this is my thesis, some desires are always evil, always. Like the desire to kill somebody out of vengeance or out of anger. Now, it doesn't mean that every time somebody is killed like through mil um, an act of military or you know, some kind of act of the state, that's not the same. I'm talking about the anger kind of murder, right? So that's always an evil desire. So you understand, right, that not all desires are the same. So it's important for us to understand that. And so I'm gonna go back and help you with some definitions in the Hebrew. I'm not gonna try to pretend that I know how to pronounce that, kamata, I think. But anyway, it's, this is the word that the Old Testament uses. It means desire or to take pleasure in. And one definition is desire in a bad sense of inordinate, ungoverned, selfish desire. And that's the one that's used in Exodus 20 or in Proverbs 6.25. Or in second meaning can mean just to take pleasure in something in an idolatrous way. So what is Exodus 20.17? Well, that's you shall not covet your neighbor's house you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And so the commandment to not covet is this word. And it's never right to want something in a covetous way, whatever that means. And then the same word is translated as lust in, in Proverbs 6. Do not lust in your heart after her beauty or let her captivate you with her eyes, the warning to the son about the strange woman. And so the point is, is that there is this thing that is a desire that the Bible talks about that is an evil enough thing that it even makes it to the Ten Commandments. In the New Testament, there's a word called epithemio, or meo, or epithemia, depending on which tense and other things Greek words change their endings depending on how they're used in a sentence. And so this word is defined as some strongly desire to have what belongs to someone else, so that covetous component. But it also can mean a strong desire to engage in an activity which itself is morally wrong. So when you have an epithemia, strong desire to engage in something that's morally wrong, the New Testament would translate that to covet, to lust, for evil desires or to um, just straight up lust or desire. And so this is the kind of word that we're talking about. It's, um, thymia, I think the root just means to want something really bad. And epi is a prefix that uh, means on top of or outside of. So it's like over the top wanting something. It's a strong desire. 
And so epithemia or epithemel. I'm going to pronounce it epithemia most of the time. And so for the rest of this presentation, every time you see that word in green, it's this word translated into English. Okay, so I try to be consistent about that. So in Thessalonians 4, it says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, set apart, and that you should avoid sexual immorality, and that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate epithemia, right? Not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And so this is how the word is used. It's in contrast to holiness, and it's often in the context of sexual immorality. And so the, the New Testament is using this word, epithemia. All right, so that's the definitions I wanted to give you. And I, I wanted to also just say that a particular desire is an evil desire when the satisfaction of that desire always directly violates God's moral law. And so the distinction between what I would characterize as an evil desire that's always evil and a desire that's maybe sometimes evil, maybe sometimes not, is can the desire be satisfied without breaking God's law? And in this case, an evil desire, in my case, I'm going to say this means that you cannot fulfill or satisfy the desire in any way without directly violating God's moral law. Not indirectly like the fact that I'm a sinner and my motives get messed up, right? I mean, I can try to do the good thing for the wrong motive and mess up, but I'm not, that's an indirect violation. I'm talking about a direct violation. When God says, thou shalt not do a particular thing, and you have a desire to do that particular thing, that desire is, by definition, an evil desire, because there is no way you can respond to that desire in a way that does not break God's law. To want something that is always wrong is to have an evil desire. That's what I'm trying to say. And that, that's how I'm interpreting the Bible. So I'm going to continue to try to support that thesis as we work through it. And I want to make a distinction. It's helpful for me to make a distinction between external and internal temptations. Right? So we have these temptations that can come to us. And some of them come from outside. And some of them come from inside. And so I want to kind of see how that sheds light on this. I did some research, and I don't know where Augustine said it, but he was asked, or he write, tried to write a paper once, or what? Did, I don't think he tried to write a paper, maybe tried to sketch a cow, I don't know, you know, on leather. But he said that temptation involves three steps. Suggestion, pleasure, and consent. And so those three words, he says, suggestions are not sin until pleasure leads to consent. So that's what he taught. And he went to the example of the first temptation, right? Adam and Eve. And so Eve was in the garden and Satan came to her and he said these things. He said, you will not certainly die after he'd already talked to her a little bit about the tree. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So that yellow there is the suggestion. You can eat this. And the other parts of the suggestion from Satan are your eyes will be opened, you'll be like God. You know, there's a lot of components. But the suggestion was do this, right? 
And then Eve, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, that's where Augustine gets the pleasure component, right? So the steps were, the suggestion happens to me from outside, and then I kind of look at the apple. It wasn't an apple. I look at the fruit, and it was pleasing. So Eve looked, and it was pleasing to her eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, and so she took some of it and ate it. That's the consent part. That's where she crossed into sin. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. So Adam sinned. So when did Adam sin? When he took the fruit, when the action happened. Problem is, I want to say, and I hardly want to argue with Augustine, I suppose, but I want to say is Eve didn't have a sin nature yet. So this is a kind of an unusual case study to take because I'm going to say that when we see the pleasing part, we're pretty close already to crossing the line into sin. So again, suggestions are not sin until pleasure leads to consent. I'll grant that. But I'm also going to say, consider when, however, the temptation is internal, not external. Jesus was tempted from the outside by Satan. Eve was tempted from the outside by Satan. But we are sinners. We have a sin nature. And we bring our own baggage. (laughs) We bring our own sin nature to the scenario. And so James says, when tempted... No one should say to me, God has tempted me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. And this particular verse, interestingly, on a different theological question, was used to try to prove to me that Jesus was not God one time when I was in college, because Jesus was tempted in every way like we are, but the Bible says God cannot be tempted by evil, so Jesus therefore must not be God. And the answer, of course, is the next verse, because James is talking about a different kind of temptation that the Lord Jesus never experienced. And that is, each one of you is tempted when you are dragged away by your own evil desire, epithemia. That's the word. When you are dragged away by your own evil desire and enticed, Then, after epithemia has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And so when I bring my own evil desire to the table, I think that it's possible to enter into sin way sooner than I would otherwise uh, want to admit. Suggestions are not sin until pleasure has led least to consent, But suggestions springing from my internal evil desires are already in the heart and therefore consent, sin, may, is in the heart already. Maybe. I at least want you to consider that possibility. That you don't have to act with your body to engage in sin that you can respond to an evil desire on the inside and still be wrong. And I think there's more evidences for that as well. So let's continue on. Evil desires come from the heart. And so in the teachings of Jesus, you have heard that it was said, 
you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus would say, oh, yes, you can, right? You can commit sin in your heart. You're guilty of that. That's the whole point. The Pharisees of his day were trying to make it external. And I never broke the law. And he says, but it's in your heart first. And if you're angry at your brother, you're guilty of murder. And so it is in the heart. And then Jesus says in Matthew 15, the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. And these are the things that defy you. For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and, and theft and false testimony and slander. It's in my heart that these things come from. And then Paul writes in Romans 7, he says, I would not have even known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of epithemia, every type of coveting. And then he, farther down in Romans 7, he says, I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out for what I, for I do not do the good I want to, but the evil I do not want to do, this is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do is no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living in me that does it. And so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. And so I'm just reminding us that an evil desire is particularly pervasive in, in our hearts and we're likely to fall into it more quickly than we think. Um, I just want to point out that according to the Bible, evil desires are particularly harmful. They're of a different category than the desire to eat is sometimes wrong and sometimes um, not right, right? Sometimes we overeat, we can, you know, it's out of balance. But it's not as harmful as something that's straight up evil all the time, all the way. And the New Testament says God gave them over to the epithemia of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies. So it ruins your body. It degrades your body, according to God. And St. Peter, we've escaped the corruption in the world caused by epithemia. So it corrupts the world. It corrupts our lives. Ephesians refers to it as all of us among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our, that's the epithemia, the epithemia of our sinful nature and following its desires, its wishes. That's a different word for desire. That's just following its wishes and thoughts. And like the rest, we were deserving of wrath. And so because of our evil desires, that's why God's wrath is being revealed against us. Ephesians, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put to death your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful epithemia. So our, our person, we, we can lie to ourselves here. Oh, no, I was just window shopping. I wasn't really lusting. And that's so easy to lie to yourself. Second Peter, or First Peter, dear friends, I urge you to abstain as foreigners and exiles to abstain from epithemia, which war against your soul. So there's a battle in our lives. And then James says, desire, when it's conceived, right? Life begins at conception. <laughs> when it conceives, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And so evil desires are really harmful. And we need to worry about them and deal with them correctly. 
And I want to just add one more observation, is that a hardened heart makes it even worse. The problem is, is we are prone to uh, view ourselves with too much grace and not enough honesty. Ephesians says they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. They've lost all sensitivity and have given themselves over to sensuality as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. And so it's so possible to slip into that kind of um, horrible thing. So again, I, I'm trying to define where the line is. And I, I'm, I'm kind of leaning towards it. It happens sooner than we think. But either way, it's possible, according to Jesus, for you to sin in your heart without taking an action. And when a desire, when the fulfillment of a desire is always an evil act, then the desire itself carries the characteristic of being an evil desire. So that's basically been the, the thrust of my argument so far. Um, viewing an evil desire as not yet sinful until an action takes place is to miss the truth that consent, that's uh, Augustine's word, can be given to an evil desire while it's still in the heart. That's, that's what I'm trying to say. When facing evil desires, sin happens sooner in the temptation process than we are often wise or willing enough to confess. I think we're already there. I, I'm walking down the bike trail. I see a person coming out of the way. They get closer, I recognize it's a woman. The next, I get a little bit closer and I start to think whether it's an attractive woman or not. And the next question is whether or not the attraction is on a scale of one to 10. You see what's already happened? I think I've already engaged in evil desire. It's a person created in the image of God. I've already objectified her from a distance and been unfaithful to my wife if I go into the ranking of particular characteristics. And so that's, that happens sooner than we are often willing to confess and therefore needs to be dealt with as strictly as the New Testament tells us to. I want to use as an example here the case of incest just to try to maybe give us a, um, a way to think about it. I can understand the definition of incest without sinning. I know what that means, right? I can observe that my sister is a beautiful woman without sinning. I think I can do that too. I can tell uh, by this world's standards, right? you know, not everybody is equally beautiful. And the Bible describes some people as being exceptionally handsome or beautiful. So I can observe that fact, but not sinning. But I cannot want her sexually at all without sin because it's an evil desire it's a forbidden thing you are not you know the Amnon and Tamar story and he lusted after his half-sister and it was a forbidden thing and the problem was way before he raped her and it was wrong for him all the way and so that's just an example of how that this what ought to fire in our hearts when we encounter evil desires it's my sister what are you talking about it wouldn't even register. It wouldn't even take a foothold for most of us. But unfortunately, some even struggle with that evil desire, right? That's a whole separate question, which evil desires you get to fight in your life. But uh, 
most of us would readily identify as um, sisters off limits. Just not, not even thinking about it. Okay, so that's, that's what I wish I could do with all the evil desires that come into my life. All right, so that was the definition section. And so now I want to talk about how to respond to our evil desires. What does the New Testament tell us about that? And man, there was so much text. I spared you all of them. But there, this, this epithemia occurs 75 times, I think, in the New Testament. So it's frequently referred to. But one text says, do not love them. That's 1 John. Say no to them. Abstain from them. Do not conform to them. Do not think about, you don't even think about how to gratify them. I have to at least share this one. Put them off or put them to death. In Ephesians, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which itself is being corrupted by its deceitful epithemia, its, its desire. So we're supposed to put them out, put them out of mind. It's just not an option. I'm going to put it to death. Colossians says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust. Those are four, four words that refer to sin, sexual sin before he even says epithemia, right? You've got to put off the desires for these things as well, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. So the Bible is really clear that New Testament believers have a lifelong task to put to death evil desires when they come into their lives. And so those are the things that we see as how to respond to our evil desires. Let me just, as a side illustration, it helps illustrate some other things here and how, how level the ground is, is to consider the case of courtship and marriage. So this is um, wanting any person sexually outside of the marriage covenant is sin born of evil desire. So I'm going to say that based on Jesus' clear teaching that the only place for us to uh, pursue and experience sexual fulfillment is in a heterosexual, uh, faithful, covenant-bound relationship of marriage. It's, it's a promise base. It's a death to us part. And so wanting any person outside of that is an evil desire. Any person, any gender. To lust for or participate in sexual activity before marriage is sin born out of evil desire. So in our courtship time, when we, if we are to objectify our future spouse or to participate in premarital sexual activity is to violate God's law. It's, it's, um, it's so, so beautiful when a couple loves one another as persons so much that they'll, they'll use self-control and not love one another's bodies until God permits and so it's, it's wise to wait. And, and that's the kind of um, teaching, the relationships that we would want our children to follow, right? We want them to, to be characterized by self-control and to, to, to um, fall in love, as it were, with a person, not a body, because the body is fleeting, right? Beauty is, is deceitful and 
Her charm is deceitful and beauty is fleeting. And then to want anyone other than your spouse is a sin born out of evil desire. So for me to walk down the bike trail and want somebody else is a, is a sin born out of the same, kind of the same kind of desire, an evil desire, as if I had wanted to before I was married, as if I wanted to with anybody else at any time, after marriage or not. So we all face all the time the potential for, for um, evil desire, whether we're married or not, whether we're single or not. So my battle to put to death my evil desires is the same as anyone else's all the time. It's not any different. I don't, I don't get a pass because mine is heterosexual. It's not any different. It's just as displeasing to God and just as damaging to my soul and just as destructive. So, it's, um, so the point is we're all in the battle together. We're all fighting the same thing. Okay, so what are our resources in the gospel to fight that? I mean, it, oh, it sounds so oppressive and so legalistic and oh, I've got to work so hard. And, and it is, if it weren't for the fact that we have resources in the person of Jesus. And so, first of all, the first and primary resource is the work of Jesus is both for us and as us, right? Jesus died on the cross for us. He paid the penalty of our sins for us to purchase salvation, to make it possible. But the New Testament also makes it clear that because we're in Christ, we're united with him in faith, we, he dies as us too. He, his death is our death. There's a, there's, a, there's a level of representation that's greater than just for, it's as, because we're one with him. We're in Christ, not just believers of Christ, but we're in Christ. And so Romans would say, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. So we've already, according to Paul, we've already been united with him in his death, and we already participate in his resurrection, and someday ultimately we'll participate in that resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might, not, might be done away with and that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. There's a power that's at our disposal in the work of Jesus that transcends our battle with evil desires. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So in Christ, in the same way, I can count myself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And therefore, I do not need to let sin reign in my mortal bodies so that I obey its evil desires. I don't have to obey evil desires, because Jesus has died as me, and I'm dead with him. And so all I, the, I don't mean to say all I have to do in a casual, easy way, but what the text is saying, you just got to believe this is true. The resources are there. Count yourselves dead to sin, and it will not reign in your life. I can gain victory over how I walk down the bike trail. That's all there is to it. And then the other thing is that the the Spirit 
the life in the Spirit. Jesus gives us his Holy Spirit to form us. And so life in the Spirit will bring victory. There's hope for victory. So I say, Paul says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the epithemia of the sinful nature. This word is all over. It's the <laughs> this is the Christian life, is to deal with and resist and fight and put to death our evil desires. So if we walk by Spirit, we, can, we won't have to. We will not gratify those evil desires. For the sin nature, evil desire, epithemia, the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual morality, impurity, and debauchery, and idolatry, and witchcraft, and hatred, and discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envies, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and epithemia. It's the evil desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. God provides a way through the Spirit. Isn't that wonderful? In 2 Peter it says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own great glory and goodness. And through these He has given us His great and precious promises so that through them, those promises, you can participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Jesus gives us, God's word gives us everything we need to be a successful follower who has victory over evil desires. So it's not like Star Wars where you get to meet Darth Vader once and then you're forever okay. It's a battle every day, right? It's a battle every day, but the provisions are there. Okay, so I think... Um, we've talked about the definition and evil desires and the resources found. And so let's try to answer these questions and see what the implications are then. So first of all, if you're going to say, I do believe in the gospel, but I'm not persuaded that it is an evil desire, that homosexuality is, is an evil desire, I'm not pers- I say no, it's not an evil desire, then I'm going to think, that what you have done, if you vote yes to the gospel and no to this, is that you're saying that Jesus does not say no to you here. So you are interpreting the Bible, you're interpreting the teachings of Jesus as not saying no to sexual expression that's homosexual. You're, you're, that's what you're saying. If it's okay for you to have this desire, you're, you're not agreeing with me that anything that you want that's against the rules is an evil desire, right? So you're, you're just, you're straight up disagreeing with Jesus. You are going to say things like, well, God made me this way. I've always been this way. I didn't choose this uh, sexual desire 
this evil that I didn't want it. I've tried to get rid of it. All those kinds of statements can come out of this. But there's sort of a blame-shifting kind of thing that happens, I think. And then um, the I'm persuaded that my desires cannot be changed. I've tried everything, and there is no hope. And I would say, then you haven't really understood the gospel yet. Because the Bible teaches me that I have hope over my evil desires. And it doesn't manifest itself in any particular end goal. I don't know what that means for me. All I know is that Jesus is able to make me successful over my evil desires. He's God of my heart. He gets to decide. And then I think there's a tendency here that if you already grant that God made me this way, my desires cannot be changed, what shifts, I think, and again, this is my, my opinion, not thus saith the Lord, but my opinion is that this is where we begin to see, well, my desires then define my identity. This is who I am. This, I am a, a gay person because I can't change. This is the way God may be, and there's nothing wrong with this. So I, I'm just as this is what I am. And so I'm afraid that that's where that winds up being for a person who would say no to it being an evil desire. Now, I, I, not for me to judge whether or not this person is a believer or not, all I'm saying is that this is what it looks like to me that you're, you're saying Jesus doesn't have authority on this particular topic. If I am a, a person, though, who says, I do believe in the gospel, and I do believe that this is an evil desire, then the kinds of characteristics that I think I'll manifest is, I will realize that we all face our evil desires. And my battle with the set of evil desires that I'm facing today because they can change from different phases in your life, right? Your evil desires can come and go. But the, the, we all face our evil desires. And as my brother and sister in Christ, your evil desires are no more consequential or ineffective or, or strange or sick than mine. Mine are just, I'm more sinful than you are. And so I, I'm, we all face the same evil desires. So the ground is level, right? I... I am the same as everyone else. We obey the same Jesus and his word. And so he gets to define who wins and what wins in my life. And you might disagree with him on one thing, and I'll dis I, that might be easy for me, but I'll disagree with him on another thing, and we both need to bend our wills and submit to his will. And so Jesus is our king, not, not me better than you. He's the king. It's not my teaching, it's his and we do have gospel resources and hope. I can pray for you and expect God to keep working in your life. And you can pray for me. And no matter how many times I stumble and fall, there's still grace and hope for me because we believe in the gospel. We weren't saved by our works anyway. And so we're just going to trust him all the way. And so then we can support one another in our battles, right? We can we can share and not be ostracized. I can tell you what my evil desires are in a certain context, and you can tell me what yours is, and it won't make me run away from you. Right? You're not, you're not worse than me, no matter what your evil desires are. I, I know what an evil desire is. I know how hard it is. And so we all have to face them together. 
And so then we can really truly love one another in Christ, right? What, a, what an amazing thing that, uh, you know, in, in um, Doug's message today, you've got this, this sophisticated businesswoman who becomes a Christian, uh, Lydia, and then she's in the same church with a ex-demon-possessed witchcraft lady and in the same church with a Gentile rough soldier who came to Jesus in, in that place. And what an amazing... Can you imagine that first time that the, the Philippian jailer came into Lydia's house, church, and, and they must have been weeping that they could all be saved by the same Jesus. It would have been awesome. Okay? So that's the end of part two. And next time, we're going to try to answer the question, well, if you say that you believe this is, uh, you believe the gospel, and you are going to say that it is an evil desire, then it kind of plays out that you would probably say it's an evil action. You're going to keep checking the boxes green. That's sort of obvious. But what if you said um, no on the evil desire, but you still want to say yes on it's an evil action? I, I think it's okay to have this desire set, but um, I would never want to act on it. That category, that's what we're going to talk about next time. Okay? Father in heaven, thank you for this study. I pray that we would all keep learning and uh, we would be quick to listen to one another. Thank you for the provisions in the gospel that make it possible for us to be victorious followers of the Lord Jesus. And, and the real reason we want to follow you, Jesus, is because what you've done for us. We love you so much that we've learned to hate ourselves and hate this world by comparison. You are the one that's worth following. As you said, anyone who holds on to their life will lose it. But if we lose our life for you, if we are willing to give up everything for you, we will find our life and you will fulfill us. And we will not be depraved or deprived. We will not be shorted. Your, your provisions are sufficient. And so we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.